Welcome to Genuine Humans, exploring the stories behind the great marketing leaders of our time and hearing how their journeys have influenced the brands they've built. Brought to you by The Social Element, here are our hosts, Tamara Littleton, CEO and founder, and Wendy Christie, Chief People Officer. Welcome back to the Genuine Humans podcast, and I'm here, as always, with the lovely Wendy Christie. Wendy, how are you doing? Hi, Tamara. Yeah, I'm really good, thank you. How are you today? I'm good, actually. I think I'm still benefiting from the fact that recently... I had a a trip to the zoo, actually, talking about nothing to do with work, but I always think it's good to sort of balance things. But yeah, I had a zookeeper for the day experience with my uh, girlfriend and her two boys. And I think I may have been enjoying it even more than them, actually, because it was just (laughs) the most wonderful thing, sort of feeding lemurs and things like that at Colchester. So yeah, I think it's, it's good to get that balance, isn't it? That sounds really, really lovely. I think that might be my weekend nailed. (laughs) So we are joined today by Michelle Goodall, and Michelle is the Chief Marketing Officer of Guild. Welcome, Michelle. Oh, hello, Tamara. Nice to see you. Michelle, we're going to jump straight into the, the kind of the background story. I love to know how people got to where they are now. So do you want to just sort of share a bit more, well, maybe share about what you're doing at Guild and then go backwards as far as you want and just talk about how you got to where you are. Back into your childhood. <laughs> we'll definitely go there. <laughs> yes, I've heard the other ones. You do go there. And, uh, I'm ready. I'm braced. So yeah, let, let's, let's go backwards. Guild is a platform for professional communities and networking. When people describe it, it's a bit like the best bits of WhatsApp and the best bits of LinkedIn smushed together It's a place and a space where people can create private communities or professional communities, public communities. Uh, It's easy to use. It's mobile first. Listen to me. I'm a marketer here. It's like a consumer messaging app, but it is purpose built for professionals and business. So GDPR compliant, ad free, privacy by design, and people can custom brand their own communities and obviously get all of the juicy admin and analytics features. Um, and I'm CMO there. I'm in my second iteration. Uh, I was head of marketing. I got poached and then loved Guild so much <laughs> that I went back to Guild. And um, we're you know, really sort of, I think, we're poised for greatness in 2022. That's how I'm going to introduce Guild at the moment. Brilliant. I'm, I'm a big fan of Guild as well. Thank you. So you want to you wanna know about me when I was little? Just start where you want, but um, yeah, I, I think everything is connected. So yeah, just just jump on in. I think it is. So I'm the youngest of three girls. I've got two big sisters. My elder sister is seven years older than me and my middle sister, three and a half years older than me. I was the last and I was a bit of a mistake, as my mum said, but a lovely mistake. Um, I think they were quite hoping for a little boy. So um, I was very much, you know, the kind of, the girl who was running around, kicking footballs, climbing trees, uh, basically, you know, I was always on a building site because my dad was a builder and an untrained architect. Um, we actually built our own home and I helped to do that as well. So I was wow. a bit of a bricklayer at the age of six or seven. Yeah, my, my dad was a, a big kind of influence, I think, on me and, you know, the Michelle of today. He was an entrepreneur. 
Uh, he was an architect, but never a Reba trained architect. He did it off his, his own bat and, and learned his trade, but was very good at what he did. Built loads of houses in Norfolk. If you go to places like Old Catton or Spixworth, you'll see loads of my dad's quite modern 1970s, 1960s uh, houses. And um, yeah, we we built our own house. We built this wonderful massive pile in a tiny hamlet in North Norfolk. And it was very modern. My dad loved, you know, Conran and Habitat and all of those things. It was way ahead of its time. And his business was successful. But unfortunately, he was subject to a very, very bad debt from somebody. Um, Actually, was owed quite a lot of money in the early 80s. And as a kind of a consequence, we lost our house and uh, went from being a lovely, you know, upper working class family who went on a couple of French holidays a year and enjoyed the finer things in life to having no money. And my mum and dad having to explain that we couldn't have just juice or roller cola on our shopping list um, and those kind of things. But I, you know, up until that time, I had an absolute idyllic childhood. I was always out being mischievous, making people laugh, you know, kind of rolling down trees and building mines under the ground. I was a proper sport billy. (laughs) And my sisters also called me Mimi, not because that was how I sort of described myself, but because I was always going, look at me, look at me, Um, making people laugh, performing. I used to do impressions when we used to go on holiday to Butlins and do my Tommy Cooper impressions and things like that. So yeah, I was I was definitely a bit of a show off, but also I think a bit of um bit of a speed freak. Um I had no boundaries. I was able to kind of grow up without sort of worrying about cars on the road and hang out with my friends and do really, really, really crazy things. So it was very happy go lucky and it was wonderful. And then everything sort of turned at the age of thirteen. And that's when I think probably one of the biggest things that has had an impact on my career happened. So my dad lost his business and essentially they had to kind of figure out what to do because when you lose your business, you also lose your house as well. And they decided to run a pub. My mum had been working uh, in a pub and was in the kitchen and worked behind the bar. And they kind of felt that that was uh, an ideal thing to do. It would mean that we would obviously be able to have a roof above our head, but also to get a half decent income. And that was interesting. So at the age of 13, there were some great things. I was able to hang around the jukebox. And when when Mal came to change the vinyl, I would be the benefiter and the benefactor. And my 80s record collection on vinyl is absolutely fabulous as a result. (laughs) (laughs) We had a pool room so my friends could come over and we played pool and arcade games and, and things like that. Also, I used to nick things from the cellar and go out and drink cider in fields and go smoking down the local beck. God, I was a bit of a a naughty girl. And I was kind of largely sort of left alone, really. But um, equally, there was, you know, some bad things around being left alone. So my sisters actually decided to leave home. They didn't really want to live in a pub. Um, So it was quite lonely, really. I um, was on my own, um, you know, obviously with this huge community called a pub, but... um, yeah, it was it was an interesting time. I mean, the bad things, um, as well as sort of losing my sisters at that point, was that, you know, when you live in a pub, you see alcoholism mm-hmm. up really, really close and the thing that it can do to people. Um, and of course, we lost some people within that community as well. And I never really saw my parents. They were up at seven. Um, you know, they taught me the, the art of hard work um, and often in bed by sort of one or two o'clock. So actually, when I probably needed 
focus and help and support from them in mm-hmm. terms of school and college. I didn't really get that. So I actually did the bare minimum <laughs> at school and college. I got decent grades, but actually I could have done much, much better, really. And how how has all that shaped how you are now, do you think? It must have, that's a lot. There's a lot of up and downs in, in that childhood. So how has that shaped how you are now? Well, I think, you know, I've talked about the bad things. There were some really fabulous lessons that I learned. You know, I realised and talking um, you know, to colleagues about this the other day, we were talking about pubs and, and churches and mosques and synagogues and how they are genuine hubs for kind of local communities. Now, growing up in this you know, local village pub, it really was a genuine hub. It really was a genuine community. You know, I saw really lonely people go for comfort and support. I saw old people, you know, go and buy a half a mild and, you know, sit there for six hours playing dominoes with their friends rather than be alone in their own house at home. And also like when there was really bad weather in the, the hurricanes in 1987, we all got trapped in the village for about four days. Um, so we were, you know, able to kind of feed people and, you know, give them burgers out of the freezer and milk and all of these things. The farmers would bring milk to us and then we'd distribute it. And it was really was a proper hub for the community along with uh, the church and the village as well. I think the things that I really learned was, you know, I've said this to my kids, you should work in a pub, you should work in a restaurant or a shop if you really want to understand people, transactional analysis, dynamics, communities, all of these things. Because I learned some really good skills. I learned to remember people's names and faces, the drinks that they wanted, their food preferences. I also learned not to prejudge people. And I've got a story. And actually, when I was thinking about this earlier, I had a little bit of a tear. There was one guy, he was really scruffy, you know, would come in every day, absolutely filthy. And he would come in exactly the same time every day, sit with his mates. He was loud. He was boorish. He would swear a lot. And at the age of 14, I kind of thought he was hilarious. (laughs) But when he died, he left a lot of money behind the bar for my mum and dad for his wake. And, you know, in the 80s, I think it was about a thousand pounds, which was a huge amount of money back in those days. He was a rag and bone man, but he was probably the richest person in that bar. And he was really grateful for the part and the role that we played in his life to give him a home and a space, you know, for this sweary old guy who, um, you know, actually just needed us as well. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing, you know, Wendy, I learned about not judging a book by its cover, not just with him, but also there was um, a family of four. They were really lovely. And at this point, you know, mum and dad had just got the pub. There was a lot of money worries. We were, you know, scratching to make ends meet. And this family of four came in, they were polite, they were wonderful, warm, generous, grateful, they loved their food, they ate everything up, and they asked for coffees, and I went and brought them coffees, and they'd done a runner. Oh, no. I know, it was awful, and um, I just remember being in tears and, you know, apologising to my parents, I felt really guilty, and, you know, it was a lot of money that we just didn't simply have to uh, you know, views at that point. Now, I'm a big believer in karma. I'd like to think that at some point <laughs> there was some kind of recompense. But, you know, ultimately, for me, it was about never, ever, you know, judging a book by their cover. Everybody who came into that pub, you know, has a story, has something to give. And, you know, also there are people who are, you know, downright nasty, but without yeah. them in my life as well. Do you think, because... I've got so many questions, but I'm going to start with empathy. Do you think being around so many people and, as you said, sort of just going up and and chatting to people, 
do you think that has helped you with empathy as a leader now? Yeah, I think so. My kids get really annoyed at me. You know, when I'm out and about, if I see somebody that I know in the street, I'll stop and talk to them. But even if I don't know people, if it's the postman or people on tills and supermarkets, I'm always interested in them. I, I always like to think that, you know, just by saying a kind word, you can actually have an impact on someone, even if they're having a shitty day. And if they're having a shitty day and, and people really don't want to talk, then I know the signs as well. Mm-hmm. So I'm not just kind of madly gabbing at people. But I think I think you're right. I have learned to listen Uh, I do like to talk, but I do like to genuinely listen to people and actually listen to those answers. So you were talking about the zoo, you know, kind of earlier. And it's like I knew that because I had heard you talk about going to the zoo already. And I think I do absorb a lot of information about people. Mm -hmm. Um, So that definitely was a skill that my parents kind of taught me and and being in a pub taught me. You know, just little things often matter uh, in somebody's day, particularly as we're kind of distributed and as we're working in these hybrid environments you know small things can matter if you remember those things and it obviously sparked an interest in community how did you get into your first your first job as it were then tell tell us a little bit more about your first early jobs and and onwards (laughs) okay so the reality is I my, my parents again um, had kind of issues and challenges around money, so I didn't go to university. And I think everybody who has met me has been really surprised by that fact. And for a long while, I think I kind of hid it. Uh, I didn't really want people to know that you know Michelle had been to the University of Life rather than uh, you know Bath or, or Bristol or elsewhere. I actually went straight into work, and I worked for uh, Norwegian for a while. Um, didn't really like it, you know, kind of group money pensions wasn't for me. So looked for a way out of it. And I actually took voluntary redundancy. I think it was in the first Black Friday and saved up that money. I trained as a uh, English as a foreign language teacher and planned to go to Japan. Didn't quite make it, but I did make it off to the Netherlands where I taught uh, English as a foreign language for three months and made some wonderful friends, had some incredible times, and then had to come back and sleep for nearly two weeks because of my lifestyle <laughs> out there. <laughs> uh, and came back and was at a bit of a loose end, to be honest with you. And in growing up in Norwich at the time, you really only had a couple of opportunities. That was to work at Bernard Matthews and to be a turkey twizzler or to work at Norwich Union. And I'd done the Norwich Union bit. So I really just had a few jobs. Um, I was an electrical saleswoman. So, you know, kind of used my empathic skills and my ability to be able to sell extra gin and tonics and crisps and upsell on salty snacks. Took that to television and white goods and things like that. And really bummed around for a while as all of my friends were going through university and starting their their first jobs. And I think I realised I was going sort of nowhere fast, to be honest with you. So a friend of mine, offered me the opportunity to move to London to go and sleep on her floor and and figure out, you know, what I wanted to do with my career. And I think this was actually my really big break. You know, I'm very thankful to Celine. So I'm sure that she's not listening to this, but I slept on her floor for nearly a year. Uh, She introduced me to a couple of wonderful people, uh, Richard and Corinna Davis, who were a couple of really geeky programmers. They wouldn't mind me saying that. And they had brilliant product at the time. It sat between databases and also then very sort of nascent desktop publishing software and I think they recognized in me somebody who could I think envisage a a product Mm -hmm. and um, I was sort of you know mucking about with 
early sort of websites and helping them with things like packaging and writing brochures. And they said to me, oh, would you like to be put through the CIM? So they put me through the CIM and got a CIM uh, set of qualifications and actually helped them with their you know, very nascent marketing strategy. And actually, you know, this was in the early 90s. So created a very early brand website, created a value added resale channel, went over to places like Helsinki and Germany and the Netherlands and France and set up a VAR channel, did a lot of sort of early conferences, you know, really learned it as I went along. And because, you know, I wasn't really mentored by them, I was given a free reign. I was able to kind of look at the books and go, okay, let's apply that to this. And we did fabulously well. You know, it's a really successful product with a a really successful resale uh, channel. And I think, you know, in my sort of, you know, early 20s, I got a bit fed up with B2B, to be honest with you, and wanted, you know, this sort of nascent internet marketing, digital web chats, um, all of those kind of things. And, And I moved over to an agency called 4DC, Fourth Dimension Communications, which actually I still think was the first online PR agency. Mm-hmm. And I did things like um, SEO for S Club 7 oh, and um, <laughs> you know, loads of web chats with celebrities. And I think we did uh, you know, a lot of internet first. So things like a discovery live webcast with Greg and Max uh, at a point where people really weren't streaming things. Um, so it was great. It really fed, I think, into my love of consumer brands and creativity. And we worked with a lot of really good PR agencies at the time. And I got poached by one of those PR agencies. So joined Lexus Public Relations as head of digital, set up the digital division. And we were working with people like Dove and Boots and Domino's. It was a really hot consumer PR agency. And we did a lot of firsts there as well. And I think that's when you know people were starting to talk about Web 2.0 and also social media as well and worked on some incredible brands. So launching variants of Coca-Cola and Second Life, you know, the metaverse before the metaverse and all of these things. And actually, that's when I came to know you, Tamara, because we were doing quite similar things at a, a similar time. I always think that it's kind of weird that we didn't know each other earlier yeah. because we were both sort of kicking about at the sort of the same time when when social media was in its sort of nascent uh, era but yeah it was it, it felt like almost we were sort of living parallel lives but I'm yeah. I'm glad we've met now I, I think that's really true and you know as I've come to know you we were talking you know the other day about you know some of the um, what was the concert that you did it was like um, a Live Aid, but it was... Oh, um, yes, yeah, NetAid with, Net with the BBC, yes. I was in the audience, not quite the same thing, but I was there, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I was behind the scenes working at the BBC, running their forums, mm-hmm. and my brief was to interview the musicians as they as they came off stage. I had to grab them, get them to write in the forum so that the community could could see what they were all saying. And, of course... None of them wanted to type onto a computer. They've just come off stage. So I had to adapt really quickly and then just interview them, scribble it down on a piece of paper. And then I quickly turned it into David Bowie has just said this. And it was it was the most amazing. Yeah, I got to meet Keris Matthews. And but there were bonkers things happening at that time, yeah. weren't there? I think I think the thing is, there were no rules. And and actually what I would say now, there is a difference between what we see now and actually then. 
I think now there are some, you know, definite channels and there are some definite rules and, uh, you know, we, we kind of play to that. I think there's still a lot of creativity, don't get me wrong, but we were making things up as we went along. I remember working with IKEA and, you know, what we had to do was try and prove to people up in Edinburgh that opening up an IKEA store, you know, wasn't going to have a detrimental effect on traffic in the area. Mm. So what did we do? We put, you know, a webcam in a plastic bag and a see-through bag and chucked it up on the top of Ikea and, you know, kind of tracked, um, you know, roundabouts and travel. You wouldn't be able to do that now um, because of number one, health and safety. You know, you'd have to have a crane, you know, to get you up there. But we just looked at, I think, challenges and problems and opportunities and made things up, you know, as we went along. And in that, it was really liberating and very freeing. And, you know, we we kind of made a lot of the rules up, I think, as we as we went along. And I just had a great time. I mean, it was fabulous. And I'm very sorry that we didn't, you know, get to meet each other at that point, because I think we probably would have egged each other on to do even more crazier things. Yeah. <laughs> and I was thinking while, while you were talking about all of the work you did with the celebrity chats, is that it quite possibly that you're you crossed over with what Wendy was doing at, at AOL as well. Yeah, it's so funny. You talk about parallel lives. That was one of the things that I used to, to, to help with was to really to type on behalf of the celebrities. So they would come in and the the audience would be asking questions in chat rooms and then I would be relaying them, typing back. And I did both S Club 7 and Keris Matthews, <laughs> who you both mentioned. So the, the parallels are bonkers. I mean, it sounds like you've really met some amazing people and uh, and had some opportunities as a result of that you for you know Celine and her mm-hmm. floor in London are, are there any any is there anyone else that you'd like to sort of call out as people who've really supported you or influenced you in your career I was thinking about this and and these are people that they don't do the speaker circuits they were never really you know that famous when I throw these names around you'll probably have to you know google them and you won't find much out about them but they were quietly getting on with doing a wonderful job. So there were two people actually at Lexis who I thought were fabulous. You know, one one of these people I see on a regular basis, Libby Cavin, and, you know, she sort of says, oh, I didn't teach you anything. You're fabulous, Michelle. Well, actually, she taught me to be a bit humble and humility. She taught me to really own my mistakes and she taught me how to apologise. And I think... You know, that would be one of my character flaws as a sort of third child. And I'm not going to use this as an excuse, me, 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 me. But you try and get away without getting found out. And so actually apologising and fessing up to your mistakes doesn't necessarily come naturally if you're in that sort of you know order of things uh, in a family. So she taught me really to own things um, if I did make a mistake and to show that to clients and, and to quickly redress things as well. In the same agency, um, my line manager was uh, Fiona Jolly. Uh, I think she's retired now, but she was fabulously strategic. And people often criticise PR agencies for not being strategic. I think one of the reasons that Lexis was so successful was it was really fabulously strategic and also very, very creative, which is, you know, a double threat. And Fiona really embedded um, that strategic thinking. And I think she drew out of me the ability to be able to distill quite creative ideas and bring it back to a fundamental truth. You know, what fundamental truth are we trying to tell about this brand or this organisation? So I would say, 
Libby and Fiona from Lexis. But then I've learned so much from clients. And I think anybody who's been agency side, there are some clients that scare the knickers off you because you 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 get that sort of ooh, sinking feeling when it's the status update or you've got to present some ideas or, or you've got to have that call with them. But actually, they're the clients that I think I've learned the most from. And I'm not to say that these guys scared the knickers off me, but uh, Raluca Efford from Direct Line, Eva Applebaum from the BBC, and also Rick Jones um, from Camelot. I think as clients, they pushed me exceptionally hard to do very, very good work for them. And I think that, you know, I'm no longer agency side and haven't been for a very long time. But the best clients are the ones that see you as genuine partners and actually do push you to be, you know, the very best of yourself when you're delivering good strategic work for them. Yeah, such a great way to think about it. And coming back to you, talk to me about your leadership style, because I know that you're more uh, extroverted, you've got very high empathy, but it would be great to just sort of hear it from you about what is your specific leadership style, would you say? And this is the kind of question you ask the people that you're working with. I, do you know, I'm going to say that I'm still learning and I'm learning how to be a leader. I was a consultant for a very long period of time. And actually, I think that defines the way that you work and the way that you operate. So I would say as a leader, I'm still learning from good leaders. And I would count you as one of those, uh, Tamara. You know, I, I ask you questions and I would say that you're one of my you know, fabulous mentors in terms of, of leadership. I've enjoyed our pandemic walks as well. Oh, <laughs> walks were wonderful. We really needed those, didn't we? I'm very open, uh, not just to people who are coaching me, but also you know, to the people that I work with as well. I would say to kind of encapsulate my style and lead from the front. Mm-hmm. I find it really hard not to do. I like to get stuck in. I like to get things done. I definitely have a bias for action. I've got a picture on my wall called iterate, iterate, iterate. And I think that, you know, you can sprint on things. You can give things a go. And I've learned that actually I'm a bit of a perfectionist. And what I need to do is to be just good enough and then to iterate and iterate and iterate that. And I think I've learned that over the last sort of five years or so. And I would say that I ask my team to do the same thing, you know, do your very best, but we can keep iterating. I'm a big fan of the uh, the 80-20 rule of just, you know, get it out when it's 80% and then work on the rest. But as a self-confessed, slight control freak, I find that hard too. <laughs> <laughs> control freakery, perfectionism, all of these things. I mean, but they can be the enemies when you need to make things, you know, kind of move quickly and you know, I'm yeah. in a, a scale-up business and, and you have to have a bias for action. You can't hang around, um, you know, because there are platforms with bigger budgets and, you know, hundreds of thousands of people working for them. So we do need to get things done and we do need to lead from the front. I think, um, you know, other things, I would like to think that I'm empathic. People do say that I'm kind. I'm a mum. I think I bring my maternal self to work, probably a little bit too frequently. I experienced kind of issues about being a working mum early in my career, but now I'm very happy to sort of be quite maternal in the workplace. And, you know, the colleagues who I've worked with who've gone on to do really great things have said that, you know, they really benefited from that that caring side of me. 
which, you know, not everybody will have seen. I think there's some people that I've worked with who would say, really, I didn't see this person in the workplace. <laughs> but yes, I, I, I would like to think that I'm a, a kind leader who, you know, I, I, I really deeply care about the people that I work with. Um, Anyhow, oh, I'm getting a bit emotional now. I didn't think I would. Well, no, I mean, we, we, often people say this is a bit like a sort of therapy session, but uh, I'm, I'm going to sort of hopefully not tip you over, over the edge. But um, what's the bravest thing that you've ever done? Do you know what? I think one of the things about losing everything when you're really young is it teaches you not to be necessarily brave. Hmm. I actually don't think that I'm a very, very brave person. I think people sort of looking outwards into me would say, yes, you are brave. You know, Michelle, you're a former British kickboxing champion. You know, you definitely oh, took Oh, just slip that in. Wait, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> I clearly you've not been looking at my guild profile because we ask people to you know, say something surprising about themselves. When I was 15, I was BKBU, British kickboxing champion in Amazing. the UK. Now, there wasn't a very large pool of female kickboxers at that point. So I can't sort of say, you know, I would have gone on to international standard. But I loved my kickboxing. It was obviously, I don't know whether it was just sort of eating the wrong things in the 1980s, but um, probably an avenue for all of those E-numbers and sunny delights that I was drinking at the point of time. <laughs> but, um, but congratulations. That's a, that's, you say maybe there weren't that many, but it's an incredible achievement. It's, uh, well, that's one of the reasons why I can hardly walk now because, uh, yeah, a lot of kickboxing with very, very large men. So I used to, you know, kind of try and kick people who were six foot five. But I wasn't very brave when I was doing that. I used to be violently sick before my fights, actually, and, and used to, you know, get real stage fright. It wasn't about being hit. I wasn't bothered about that. It was about not performing well and not, you know, doing my very best and not winning, actually. Oh, my gosh, there we go. It It is therapy tomorrow. <laughs> actually, performance, though, is a lovely segue because I want to talk to you a little bit about one of our shared passions, which is the choir. And also, Wendy is also uh, an, another sort of choir person uh, up in Scotland. <laughs> but, Michelle, you and I are actually in the same choir, the Natural Voices Choir in London. We are, yeah, and... You know what? I wish, again, a bit like meeting you, that I'd have discovered this, um, you know, sooner rather than later. But, you know, I think I'm one of the younger ones there. Though <laughs> I think I've got a few years in me yet at the choir. It's been, I think, the best thing that I've done you know, in the last decade or so. It's a genuine joy. You know, the noise that you can make as a group of people. There are some fabulous singers in our choir, you know, people who, when they you know, get in front of the karaoke microphone, as soloists are wonderful. But I think the thing that the choir has done to me is to get me to hold back a bit, not be that loud karaoke person on the microphone, to moderate my voice, to listen to others, to breathe, to give people space. And it's incredible if you've not done it you know singing and dancing these are two things that you can do for free it releases endorphins it gives me space to relax it just makes me feel happy I'm not at work I'm not feeding the family it's self-indulgent it's amazing and it's good for you and you know we have a great time when we perform you know people smile and it's lovely making people smile isn't it there we go. There's the people pleaser in me. So it works on that basis. Absolutely. And I think it, it sort of ticks the boxes of being able to uh, 
uh, relax outside of work, work, as you say, just because it's kind of almost like mindfulness. You cannot yeah. be concentrating on other things because you're trying to remember your harmonies and, and listen to everyone else. So, yeah, it's a, a great thing to do. So shall we move on to the part of the podcast where we get a bit more personal, as if we haven't already? <laughs> Wendy, what are you going to ask me now? My inside leg measurement. <laughs> we'll be gentle, I promise. So what's your idea of a perfect weekend? Any guilty pleasures? Oh, I have many guilty pleasures. Some I just can't talk about because, you know, <laughs> no, my guilty pleasure is really relaxing. I, I love to travel. Um, so the last couple of years have been quite tough for me. I realise that I get my energy and I recharge my batteries from going out to new places and spaces, listening to new sounds, trying a language, tasting new things, visiting new places. And one of the things that I do do when I'm on holiday is I have a hammock, a very large hammock, and I take and store up the best books that I possibly can. So my ideal weekend would be being somewhere warm, putting up my hammock, ignoring everybody else and immersing myself into some probably mystical realism or a Murakami book and just forgetting about the world outside me, not thinking about work for a couple of days. That sounds heavenly. So what have you read recently that you've enjoyed? I'm actually reading some Brené Brown books. Um, That's not mystical realism. That's more around leadership and vulnerability and the kind of things that you've embraced mm-hmm. yet. But I, I read um, a big old wedge of um, the Murakami book, Killing Kondotiori, I don't know how to uh, pronounce it. And actually, um, all of the Hilary Mantel books, uh, yeah, North Hall, all the way through to Mirror and the Light. Um, they're proper door wedges. Uh, I, I, gosh, I love reading. Mm-hmm. I was in a, um, a reading, a book club, and we, we were just rubbish at kind of, you know, meeting up with each other and actually getting through the book. So I don't put that pressure on myself anymore. Yeah, quite right. On a completely different note, what advice would you give to your teenage self? I think, you know, just talking through some of this stuff, I wouldn't say that there's, you know, sort of deep-seated things that, you know, upset me. But, you know, just thinking about the the family and the loneliness and, you know, actually at a quite hormonal time in my life, my my life, you know, about changed. And I would say, you know, Michelle, it's, it's okay. These bits are going to teach you some really important lessons that you can take into your adult life. And actually, you know, the skills around empathy and being an important part of a village and a community and, you know, learning how to talk to people and not ju- judging a book by its cover and being able to talk to anybody, these are great skills, you know, regardless yeah. of whether you go on and you become a business leader or, you know, whether you open up your own shop. What a nice thing, you know, to, to do. And and it felt tough at the time, but I would say, you know, it's OK. And, you know, you've got all of your life ahead of you. And these are kind of lessons that you can take to your children mm-hmm. and they can get annoyed at you when they're you know kind of tagging along behind you in the street and you've talked to the third person on your walk but um you know I think both of my children recognize that it's a good skill to be able to you know communicate to others so it's all right you know you'll get through this bit and there are good things to come what do you think is your personal superpower actually before covid I did have a superpower and I've read about this I've got a really, really good, or I had a very good sense of smell. So my husband's a firefighter and he used to get really 
you know, angry with me because I could smell burning toast you know, <laughs> next door. I can actually or could smell people before they entered a room. Uh, I can smell milk, you know, before it goes on the turn. And also it meant that I could, you know, kind of tell a good wine from a bad wine as well. Um, I had COVID quite badly, actually, and it has affected um, my sense of smell and oh, my sense no. of taste. So I no longer have this superpower. But I think um, I like a laugh and a joke. And of course, in a workplace, you have to be very careful around that. So we do cheesy jokes and we do puns. I definitely won't win the Edinburgh Fringe <laughs> Award, but I'm quite good at sort of off the cuff uh, jokes. So, yeah, I would say my personal superpower is terrible, cheesy puns. Love it. I love it. And if you were going to write a book, what would it be about? So my kids don't give me um, uh, compliments very often, and I certainly wouldn't put myself as a model parent. But I think one of the things about, um, you know, operating in social media for a very long period of time, and even social media for what's called social media, is that. I think I understand how people work and also how these platforms work as well. So mm. when they were growing up, I was very clear in telling them about the uh, the dangers, but also the brilliant things that can happen on social media. And, and what they say is that they get sort of, you know, taught at school all about the dangers and not about, you know, the ability to be able to explore your creative self, to meet people from around the world. Uh, you know, to have a place in this place when you're lonely, you know, there are things that they have to kind of, you know, think about their self-image, self-esteem, trust, not giving too much data away, understanding that they're being advertised to, all of these things. But they felt the way that I approached it to them was really good. And actually, they then uh, took that information to their friends as well, who were grateful. So they actually said, I should write a book on it. And I think mm -hmm. at some point, you know, I've got hammocks and, and books to read, but um, I think I might just kind of put my my thinking to a guide uh, for parents and also for kids as well. Well, let's let's agree that you're definitely going to do yes, that. Yes, please. And you heard it here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. And can you do it 20 years ago? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I think it's interesting. And, you know, I'm in a number of communities and, and kind of groups with women and, and still, you know, I've got young daughters and they have to be careful about these things. You know, the stories I hear about um, trolls and you know, rape threats and all of these things, it's there in front of our eyes. And so mm. it's not just for children as well. I think that we do have to be careful and cautious around these things and to support each other, um, you know, in coming forward and, and kind of dealing with these things. And I know that a lot of our networks and communities are especially good at doing that. So maybe a book and also you know, the support community around it as well. Perfect. Now, if Tamara and I had it within our power to gift you an extra hour every day, what would you do with it? Oh, I was going to say get in my hammock and, and read the book, but I've done that already, haven't I? Um, You've done that at the weekend. Yeah. yeah. Do, do you know what? I've got to an age now where um, I love food and I love drink and the finer things in life. Um, I probably would need to exercise for that extra hour. I've got an electric bike and it gets me around very quickly, but unfortunately it doesn't burn off enough calories. So right. I'm going to do a high power, high intensity workout. How about that? Brilliant. I think that might be the first time we've had that answer. <laughs> <laughs> because all of these leaders are, you know, fabulous and they look after their bodies. <laughs> how would your friends describe you? And is that the same as how you'd like them to describe you? So I cheated a bit. I have to admit, I have listened to your other interviews with people and I realised that this was one of those questions that you do ask people. Mm -hmm. 
So I asked four of my oldest friends, people that I've known since my early teens, and everybody said fun, thoughtful, caring, hardworking, high energy. My best friend, Emily, said that I was tenacious, um, and I will take that as a compliment, that I was consistent, and that I was very good at being a broad observer about what has been happening in my industry for a long period of time. She's known me for forever. She said I was a good peacemaker and a resolver of sticky situations, so maybe I should have been a diplomat, but clearly didn't do well enough at school and college for that. Um, some people have said I'm quirky. Some people said I'm a good cook. Um, I think I'm probably the second best cook in my house because my husband is an excellent uh, cook and that's why I probably need to do my high-intensity workout as well. Uh-huh. I think how I'd like them to describe me is dependable, actually. And I would say with any of my friends, if they called me at any time, night or day, if they needed me, I would drop everything to be with them because you know I really value my friends and my friendships. And um, I would like to be seen as you know somebody who could be that person who can rescue people, regardless of whether it's you know from a burning building or because they're feeling sad or lonely. So that's how I'd like them to describe me, I think. That's so wonderful. It feels like such a nice exercise to go through to uh, to sort of reach out to your friends and, and ask them their genuine thoughts as well. Do you know, I don't think people do this enough. We go on family holidays with friends and families and our kids are teenagers. And, you know, you sort of you have a bit of banter and people are a little bit mean to each other and whatever. And we actually instilled this thing that on our holidays we would go around the kind of community, our little camping community, And we'd all have to say one nice thing about somebody else who was sitting there around the fire or, you know, that you were eating with. And I think my kids and and the kids that we went camping with said it was one of the nicest things that had ever happened to them. To have, you know, 10 or 12 people saying one nice thing about them was just joyful and joyous. So, you know, I think when you ask your friends, how would you describe me? You get some nice things back. Of course, you get things like, you know, occasionally violent, but that's probably my kickboxing past and (laughs) annoying and noisy. Um, But I glossed over those ones. But I think we should not necessarily ask for compliments, but give people the spaces to be able to receive those compliments as well. Well, that feels like a a lovely place uh, to end it. it. Michelle, it's been such a pleasure to get to know you even better and and you definitely uh, count as one of our genuine humans before we close off is there anything that that we haven't covered that you wish that we'd we'd asked or anything that you'd like to any sort of closing thoughts that you'd like to to finish with I would say you know what we're doing at Guild and you know bring it back to the here and the now is that a lot of people are talking about community and I think there are some genuine communities out there You can't force fit a community. Communities often happen, you know, probably not by your design if you're a brand or a business or an organisation. But I would say, you know, for everybody, every marketer, you know, certainly I know that you're um, interviewing uh, leaders and marketers as well, is to embrace the ideas and the concepts behind community because um, it can tell you so much about you yourself, your product, your service, your your team, your colleagues, where you're going. It can be a mirror. It can show you your purpose. And also you can build great things with communities as well. So 
you know, at the heart of, I think, my career has always been this return to community. The pub was the first community and now Guild, we're building a platform where people can host these. So, you know, community is not just the latest kind of buzzword in marketing. Um, open yourself up to it as a leader and learn from your communities around you and also your local communities and your choir community and all of those things as well and seize the insights and the opportunities that come your way. You've been listening to Genuine Humans brought to you by The Social Element. If you loved what you heard, remember to subscribe or you can find out more at www.thesocialelement.agency.